When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Economist. Hello, you're listening to The Economist Asks, a new podcast from The Economist with me, Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. This week, I'm talking to Margie Kinmonth, a British-based filmmaker. The centenary of the First World War has brought forth a spate of exhibitions and commemorations, and it's also sparked renewed interest in the art of the Great War, from John Nash to John Singer Sargent, Percy Wyndham Lewis and David Bomberg, to name but a few of them. Margie Kinmonth has explored art-based themes in her previous films, from the Hermitage Museum in St Petersburg to the history of Britain's royals and their relationship with painting. In her latest film, Margie's turned her attention to the art of the trenches, with Eddie Redmayne, the Oscar-winning actor, as guide and narrator. So, when she came into The Economist's studio, I wanted to know what had focused her attention on the art of a hundred years ago and how it affects the war art that we look at today. Margie, you're well known for making access-based films with access that's often difficult to arrange. I suppose this is a very different film for you. It's it's access to the past, but through the prism of war art. And I wondered what had led you that way. Well, I'd always wanted to make a film about war art. And in fact, I was much more interested originally with the Second World War. War art just interested me because I felt we'd heard so much from the the poets and the historians and the wordsmiths. It's First World War art. This is First World War art. So I was really interested in the First World War when there's less photography and so on, how the you know the eyewitness accounts, what they left us in the way of the, the imagery and the experience and so on of being in that war. But your own family is better known from the Second World War, which you might just tell us about briefly. My grandfather was an admiral and he was director of naval intelligence in the Second World War. In fact, he was the model for M in the James Bond films because he set up naval intelligence and he hired an assistant called Ian Fleming. So we've had this kind of legend in our family. It's fascinating and how all the, you know, the events that took place between the two of them sort of formed the great fiction of James Bond But you rewound from there and you went to the First World War partly because we've had these big anniversaries and partly because the war art is so powerful but perhaps less well-known than the war poetry. Yes, well, I mean, I felt... I mean, I'm an image person, you know. I'm an artist. I've come from that background of painting and drawing and so I'm always tuned into imagery and I felt that the, the war imagery from the First World War was incredibly powerful and... Very, you know, all the artists were very different to one another. They were very individualistic and they all painted in their own different way. And I just found this sort of group of very young artists very, very interesting. And I I wondered why there hadn't been a film, you know, because we know all about the poets. Tell us about the selection of of the artists. I noticed that you you focused quite a lot on Nash, Nevinson, on the reasonably familiar artists, but you also wanted to draw out the role of art in the conflict in general, so we often see less familiar works as well. 
Well, I'm very keen on that in my films. I don't just want to promote the official British war artists, and I was very clear about that. I like finding things in archives that nobody's ever used before, and I love to find pages from notebooks and to find out the process of how artists work. And so I was very, very interested in the inventiveness of the artists um, in the war and the, the part they played actually in the war effort and helping, helping to win the war. So we discovered this guy called Leon Underwood, who was a sculptor, and he created these wonderful camouflage trees, which were all put up at night for sniper hides. So that was one guy. And then the other thing, of course, was the Dazzle paint and Dazzle Command, which was this amazing thing that took place in the Royal Academy basement. Actually, it was the women who were left behind and they were situated down in the Royal Academy school painting these battleships and designing this sort of black and white Dazzle paint, which would confuse the enemy torpedoes. Uh, when you move on from the First World War, you make a sort of loop in the last part of the film to contemporary conflicts and war artists who are very influenced by that tradition of anatomical paintings and uh, paintings or drawings of amputees. Came out of the First World War, but highly relevant now. We see a multiple amputee from Helmand. You've got the Syria conflict in there. Tell me about your thinking on that. Well, I felt very much that the whole film had a story arc that was very emotional. You had the beginning where the optimism of going to war, then the the sort of part two, which was more or less in the battlefields. And then I felt there was so much about coming home, which was still, you know, and always is absolutely relevant. And, you know, you look at today's amputees from Afghanistan, and then we sort of matched those up with, at the time, the um, shell damage was unbelievable and it coincided with the very early surgery of Sir Harold Gillies. And um, Henry Tonks was the artist who did these amazing pastel portraits of these very, very young men, survivors from the Somme, whose faces were just blown to bits. But he portrayed the beautiful eyes, beautiful hair and the skin of these sort of 18, 19-year-old lads who'd come back you know, you can't bear, you know, to look at them. It's just so, so sad. They were all rejected and they had to work in the dark as cinema projectionists because they, you know, people couldn't bear to look at them after the First World War. So they worked in cinemas, dark they cinemas? Yeah, they worked in dark cinemas and then often they maybe married their nurses or something. That, but the these men, you could see they'd been so gorgeous and handsome and, and they're just blown to bits by the, shell, the shells. Um, so... Those are unbelievable to look at, and they're kept out of sight, actually, at the Royal College of Surgeons. The um, artist called them his Chamber of Horrors, and so you have to really go, you have to get special access to see these portraits, and it, you know, you don't forget them in a hurry. What was your thinking about how you brought this to the wider audience, not only looking at Britain and Germany's role? Well, I mean, sadly, war is universal. It's it's happening everywhere. You know, we covered the Syrian conflict a bit in that the, the war artist I featured there, George Butler, is, you know, he's a very brave man and he walked into Syria and he creates a kind of eyewitness. You know, his drawings are done by just literally standing there in the ruins with a pen and ink. And it's very traditional. So I think, in a way, the internationalism of that is... It's an international language. It's a human language. There's a painting by a modern war artist called Peter Housen who covered the Bosnian War. And he, he did a painting of rape. And when he delivered it to his um, commissioners, they refused to hang it in the War Museum. And David Bowie bought it in the end. So in a strange way, 
this image that's very shocking and it's in the film and it really is very, very alarming. It's now kind of in an art gallery. Well, it's in David Bowie's art collection. So I think that's really interesting how art can travel through these borders, you know, and I think it's really important that we show these things. I'm I'm very glad it's in the film and it wasn't, I wasn't told to take it out. I must mention Eddie Redmayne because he's one of the main draws to this film. Well, wouldn't necessarily put him together with the kind of film that gets made about war art. Yeah, well, I mean, Eddie's a, a very special actor and I spotted him at the Donmar Warehouse. I went to see this play called Red, which is all about Mark Rothko. And he was actually playing the assistant. But I thought he was just amazing. And then I'd seen him in other things. Obviously, I'd seen him in Birdsong and Les Mis and so on. This was about two years ago. So I thought, I'd really like to work with him. And I I kind of researched him a bit and then I discovered that he had a degree at Cambridge for history of art. So I thought, well, this is absolutely fantastic. He'd never, ever made a factual film before. He'd never made a documentary. And I think he'd, you know, he'd, he'd looked at my previous films and uh, when we met up, I discovered that he was actually completely obsessed with that period. And how much do you think it changed Eddie Redmayne's view. I mean, we see him, you know, he looks quite moved, I think, particularly. He's obviously a very professional actor, but he, he does look genuinely moved, I think, particularly when he's in the, the sort of underground, in the Trench Museum, when you realise how much of this terrible action took place in incredibly claustrophobic circumstances. What, what did you notice that he responded to? Well, it was really the spoon and fork. We were in this museum, absolutely ancient, rusty old museum, where the earliest trenches are still there, and this. You know, it's very neglected, this place. There are no labels or anything. Everything's rusty. So they've lined up all the the bayonets, the bits of the shells, um, you know, just metal fragments everywhere. And so you walk around the museum and you find things. And one of the things Eddie was particularly interested in, and we all sort of thought was the most, the kind of potent symbol of survival was this spoon and fork, which the soldiers tucked into their putties as they were known which were these sort of trouser things and this spoon of fork was just vital and these things were lying around in the dust and rust and um, I think Eddie was very moved by that. Margie Kinmont, thank you very much. That's all from me for this time. Do join us again. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts.